Once upon a time, a gospel preacher visited a city where Christ was unknown. He surveyed the city. He walked the streets. He went to Walmart. He walked around the square. He checked out restaurants. He even went to a few churches, and he was invited to lecture at a university. And he learned that there were all kinds of people in that city and all kinds of philosophies at work in the people of that city. Some of the people were fundamentalists. They were more straight-laced and buttoned up than others. They were principled and tended to be morally disciplined and stoic. The motto of their life seemed to be, endure life, grind it out, for today or tomorrow we die and fade into nothingness. Other people seemed to be more libertine. They were carefree and free-spirited, pleasure seekers who tended to be morally lax and epicurean. Their motto was, Enjoy life, eat, drink, and be merry, for today or tomorrow we die, and who knows, we might even come back as something better or worse. I hope you realize that this preacher was not just walking around Athens taking snapshots. He could have been walking around the streets of America, a land that was once very stoic that has become Epicurean, a land that is filled with fundamentalists on one hand and libertines on the other. And we feel the tension in our culture every day. And like this preacher, often we feel our spirit provoked within us. Paul's spirit was provoked and he felt compelled to say something, to speak truth to lies, to speak knowledge to ignorance, to speak gospel to philosophy in the city of Athens. He was on a mission, not to make a name for himself, but to make a name for the Lord Jesus Christ and to make the name of Jesus known among the peoples of Athens. And you notice that when he goes to Athens, he does not preach about politics, sports, or religion. He does not lead with messages about economic theories or sexual ethics He's not debating over immigration. He's not worried about civil rights. He's not concerned about climate change. All of those things might have their time and place, and the gospel certainly speaks to each and every one of those things. But when Paul goes to Athens, he has one thing on his mind, and that is preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to Athens. He is invited up to Mars Hill by the philosophers. He has one chance, one shot, one song that he can sing, and then he's off the mount. So what will he say? What will he do? And he decides to go with the death-defying gospel of Jesus and the resurrection. His motto is, enter life. Not life as a principle, not life as a force or an energy field, but enter life the life of God revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Enter God's life by Jesus and the resurrection. Now, he has no idea how the message might be received. He only knows that it must be delivered. In other words, he's not concerned about the end result. He's concerned about obeying 
the Lord Jesus. Like all preachers, he is trying to catch up to and keep up with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was poured out on Pentecost and poured out on all flesh. The Holy Spirit has been running through the world far ahead of the church, far ahead of missionaries and messengers, preparing the way for the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit has been working in the world, stirring people, preparing them to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Spirit has gone out ahead of the apostles to convict people of sin, to convert them to Christ, and even to comfort them with the gospel, stirring the imagination of the people at Athens, including the philosophers. And now a stirred-up preacher stands up to preach the good news of God to these people. Now keep in mind that when Paul goes up to Mars Hill, this is by special invitation. He's no philosopher, but he has strange ideas that these philosophers want to hear, for they love to do nothing other than to hear and debate the strangest and newest ideas of the day. And there's nothing newer to them than the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Paul stands up on Mars Hill, he is entering into the arena of Mars, the god of war. He goes toe-to-toe with the God of war and takes him down with the gospel of peace in Jesus Christ. How does he do that? Well, he does it by raising the God consciousness of the people, by raising their eyes to look upon the Lord Jesus. He does this by first commending his hearers for their devotion and their interest in divine mystery as evidenced by an altar he found to an unknown God. And then he proceeds to make known to them the unknown God by preaching the story of God, giving them a few snapshots of that story from beginning to end, from creation to consummation. His thesis is this, the unknown God is the creator, the Lord, the Savior, the Father, and the judge. And his proof to back up that thesis is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. According to Paul, this is all the proof you need to know that the unknown God is the real thing, that he is the true truth. And so I want us to walk through his message about the unknown God and look at what he says about God, one line after another, to center your heart and mind on God, to get you to think more deeply about who God is, why he is, and what he does in the world and in your life. Notice what Paul says. The unknown God is the creator of all things. The God who made the world and everything in it gives to all men life and breath and everything. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. The philosophers of Mars Hill differed with each other on the origins of life, the universe, and everything. Some of them thought that it was made by gods who started this all, but then left it to run on its own. Others thought that it was started by some element, perhaps fire, that gradually evolved into animate life forms and inanimate objects. Modern philosophers and scientists fare no better. They still debate the same kinds of things in our day. Where did it all come from? How did it all get here? Many believe that everything came from nothing, and some believe that something produced everything in some way. And yet Paul comes along 
preaching the gospel, giving a new perspective on all these things when he says, a personal, infinite creator is the source, the means, and the end of all creation. Now, Paul is not so much concerned here with how God created all things or with even how long it took him to make all things. He is simply concerned with who created all things. He wants his hearers to know that this is not some cosmic accident, that it is not some impersonal force that brought these things about, but the true and living God. He wants his hearers to know and believe that this God who raises the dead is the origin of the species, not sparks of fire, not primordial soup, not time plus matter plus energy plus chance, but the true and living God. He is the source and the means of life and breath and everything. He is the maker of mankind. He takes a special interest in making all things, but he especially takes interest in taking the dust of the earth and breathing into that dust the breath of life and transforming that dirt clod into a man made in his image and likeness. What that should tell you is that man is a miracle. You are a miracle. You are special and precious priceless in the eyes of God. From one man, God made every nation of mankind to live. And it is this divine creative act that gives our life a sense of dignity and integrity. You are precious. You are priceless in the sight of God. Now, worldly philosophy might say that we came from nothing and that we exist for nothing and that we will return to nothing. But the gospel of God's grace says that we came from God and we exist for God and we will return to God. The gospel says that we get beauty for ashes, that we move from dust to glory. The unknown God is the Lord of heaven and earth. The God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not dwell in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Synagogues, churches, and temples are fine as sacred places of worship, and God meets his people in such places. But God is not confined to live in such places. He is not limited to the size and capacity of your sanctuary. He's not limited to the size and scope of your denomination. The earth is his footstool. Heaven is his throne. And yet he sees fit to inhabit the praises of his people and dwell in the hearts of those who love his son. The point Paul is making here is that the Lord God is not so domesticated that he needs a man-made house to live in. Nor is he so decrepit that he needs man to fix and repair him daily. He is not a Ford Idols need to be fixed and repaired daily. That's what the word serve there is. It's therapeutic. He doesn't need therapy. He's not so dependent that he needs anything from us. Rather, the Lord God is the one who calls us to live in his holy temple, in the world that he created for his glory and for our good. He is the one who serves us by fixing and mending and healing all of our brokennesses, all of our weaknesses, 
all of our sicknesses. He is the one upon whom we depend for life and breath and everything. God needs nothing from us. We forget that from time to time. We think we might have let him down. We think we might have to lift him up. We think he might need something from us. But he needs nothing from us, not food or shelter or anything else. He doesn't need our love, our service, or our praise. There is nothing that we could give to God to complete God, for God is complete in and of himself without us. But there is something and someone that God could give to us to complete us, for without him, we are nothing and we are incomplete. Worldly philosophy might say, ask not what God can do for you, ask what you can do for God. And it sounds so right and true to our flesh. Yes, of course, the Lord needs me to do something for him. But that's not what the gospel says. The gospel says, ask not what you can do for God. Rather, ask what God can do for you. Why? Because the Lord of heaven and earth comes to serve, not to be served. He comes to give his life a ransom for many. He comes to seek and save that which is lost. Let that soak in for a while. The unknown God is the Savior of the world. He does not need to be saved. Having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, why that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, yet He is actually not far from any one of us. Paul's arguing that God is sovereign over all things, which doesn't just mean that he exercises authority over everything. It also means that he assumes responsibility for the world he has made, including the time frames and the borderlands in which we live. Some people were born and raised in one place and they stay put all their lives. As someone who has moved around quite a bit, I can't even imagine what that would feel like. But other people have moved around from here to there, and they have all sorts of reasons for that. It's a career change, or a better church, or a different school environment, or maybe a sickness drove you to a certain place, or a family need, or restless curiosity, or some other circumstance in your life. Whatever the case, whether you move about or stay put, When you look at things from God's point of view, you see that God's purpose for your life does not change and it does not depend on where you are in the world. Wherever you are, God's purpose remains the same. That you are where you are because God wants you to seek for him, to reach out for him, and to find him. Now, I know that some of you might feel like God is far away. Or that he might not care about you or get involved in your life or interfere in your things. Some of you might even think that God is dead or that God does not exist. But the truth of the matter is that God is nearby and he cares deeply about every single one of you. All of you. He's not far from you and he cares about you. In the, go- in the cosmic game of hide-and-seek, God is not the one who is playing hide-and-seek from us. He's not hiding from you. You are the ones hiding from Him. 
If he's hidden from you, perhaps it's because you are looking at the wrong things, gazing at counterfeit gods of lesser things, distracted by the things of this world. And in that case, all you need do is repent, turn your eyes upon the Lord Jesus and see the glory of God. If he's hidden from you, perhaps it's because you're blind and you can't see. And you can't see the blazing light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus shining all around you. It's not because of the absence of light. It's not because the light isn't bright enough. It might be because you don't have eyes to see. And what you need are new eyes. You need to be healed. You need your eyes to be raised from the dead that you may see Jesus. You see, God is the Savior of the world. He's closer than you think, closer than it seems. He's so close that if you look for him, even with your blind eyes, he will open your eyes and you will see him. If you keep reaching out for him, he will take you by the hand and lead you all the way home. If you want to find God, he will find you. The unknown God is the father of us all. In him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are indeed his offspring. Paul is arguing here that yes, we are God's offspring. And his point isn't just that we are God's children. End of story. His point is that we came from God. God did not come from us. And that matters. It matters because in him we live and move and exist. The spirit is is the Lord and the giver of life. The Spirit is the one in whom we dwell and the one who dwells in us. We're made in God's image and likeness. God is not made in ours. He's not a product of our craftsmanship or a figment of our imagination. We are God's workmanship, His artistic expression. We are God's masterpiece. And in that sense, God is our Father. God is our founder. God is our fountain of life. We spring from him. He does not spring from us. And I want you to notice that Paul makes this point by quoting the Greek poets, not the Hebrew prophets. The Greek poets were the philosophers of the day. They thought deeply about all sorts of things, and they thought about gods and even wrote poems about them in order to praise them. These poems are like the Greek versions of Jewish psalms, and the lines from the poems that, that Paul quotes here were not written to God the Father as we might know him from the Holy Scriptures. They were actually written to Jupiter, who was the father of Mars. And yet Paul hijacks the poem. He takes a line from it to tell people on Mars Hill that God is the father of us all and we are his offspring, that we live in him, we move in him, we exist in him. Now, why did Paul do this? Well, first of all, the philosophers had no concept, no idea of what the Jewish scriptures were. And so he is trying to find a way to connect to them. As he did with their devotions and their altars, Paul took their poetic reflections as signs that they were searching for God and groping their way towards God and trying to find God. He's looking for the good and he praises it. So he can say to them, you guys are right as far as you go. 
You've got this going for you, but you don't go far enough. And I've seen a little farther, and I know maybe a little bit more. Let me show you what you don't know. Let me introduce you to the one you're trying to find. If we pay attention to the poets of our day, to the artists, the musicians, the novelists, the filmmakers, we're going to encounter the same kinds of things that Paul did. We're going to see that some are searching for God, asking the deepest heartfelt questions, wrestling with the hard truths of life. Some are shooting flares into the darkness. Others are stumbling towards eternity. Some are tripping through their wires, thinking out loud or even praying to the unknown. What can we do for them? What can we say to them? How can we help them? All truth is God's truth. And if you follow Paul's lead, who was following the Spirit's lead, you know that there are grains of truth sprinkled all over the place, strands of truth that can be pulled out of the world and woven into the gospel story. This is what Paul did. And he did it to show the Athenians that he cared. This is what we do as we go on mission with God and the power of the Spirit. We show people that we care about them because they are image bearers like us. We care enough to listen and learn what their struggles are. We care enough to find out what's going on in their world and in their culture. We want to know where they're coming from, what makes them tick, why they think and feel and live the way they do, what their interests and curiosities are. And all the while, we are looking for inroads into their life, a way to build a bridge between them and Christ. And so I can tell you that knowing a little bit, at least a little bit, about politics, sports, and religion, knowing a little bit about pop culture can go a long way towards building a bridge between your world, the people in your world, and the Lord Jesus Christ. The unknown God is the judge of the living and the dead. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. You notice how Paul saves the worst part for the last. Now that he has everyone's attention, they've heard about God, the creator, God, the Lord, God, the savior, God, the father. Now they hear about God, the judge, just as we do. There will be a day of reckoning for each and every one of us in here and everyone out there. A day to give an account for our life. Yes, there was a time in space-time history when God overlooked ignorance. That does not mean that he gave everyone a free pass to do what they want, and now the free pass has been revoked. It simply means that he put off the day of judgment until the end. He put off the day of judgment until Jesus Christ, the Savior, had come into the world. And now that time of tolerance for ignorance is over. I will grant that there might be some people somewhere in the world who could plead ignorance before the judge of the living and the dead. But we are not those people. We cannot plead ignorance. We cannot say we didn't know. Because we do know. We know far too much about the unknown God to claim that we don't know. 
We know far too much about the story of God from creation to redemption to be able to plead ignorance. We know far too much about the Creator, the Lord, the Savior, the Father, the Judge to claim that we don't know God, that we don't know right from wrong, that we don't know truth from error. God has fixed a day in which all peoples in all places will be judged for what they have done with the life that God has given them. And the standard by which God will judge the world is not this world. It is not the guy sitting next to you. It's not your own conscience. It's not the values of your culture. It's not your heart. It's not your parents. It's not your ministers. The standard by which God will judge the world is the Lord Jesus Christ and Christ alone. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who will come to judge the living and the dead. Now that might sound like bad news to some people. Why do we need to talk about judgment? The world is full of judgment. But if you think about what God is doing here and how gracious it is for him to mention it through a preacher, God is giving you heads up. He's giving you fair warning. He's saying, my son will come to judge the living and the dead, but there is a way for you to escape the judgment. He has provided a way out. Would you like to know what that way out is? The way out is repentance. He commands all people everywhere to repent to turn away from their sins, to turn away from themselves, to turn away from their functional saviors, and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, to place all their hope, faith, and love in Him. This is the way of escape. He's not asking you to leap over tall buildings with a single bound or do some other impossible task. He's saying, trust me, and you will be delivered. Repent and believe the gospel and you will be saved. And if you repent and believe the gospel, you don't have to live like the Stoic who says, I'm just going to endure life and grind it out and grit my teeth, and someday it will all be over, and I'll be put out of my misery, and I will fade into nothingness. You don't even have to live like the Epicurean who says, I'm just going to enjoy life every day. You only live once. I'm going to make the most of every moment while I have time. Eat, drink, and be merry. Life is a giant party because someday I'm going to die and then I won't be here anymore. I'm going to make the most of it, enjoy it all I can while I can. And then finally it will be over. If you turn and trust in Christ, you get to enter life. True life. God's life. You get to enter life through Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection. A death-defying truth, a death-defying reality that sustains you one day after another. Where death is not the end or anything close to the end. It is simply a passageway into a larger reality. A truer world. A world of grace and joy. A world of peace and love. A world where God dwells. He's inviting you into that life. Enter life. Enter life. Repent and believe the good news that the unknown God is your creator, your Lord, your Savior, your Father, and your Judge. 
And Jesus and the resurrection is all the proof you need to know that this is the truth. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let us pray. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who desires not the death of any sinner, but rather that all sinners may turn from their sins and live, we ask you to grant us true repentance and your Holy Spirit, that the things we do in this life may please you, and that the rest of our life may be pure and holy in your sight, so that at the last, at the end of all things, we may enter into life and come into your eternal joy through Jesus Christ and the power of the resurrection. Amen.